Today's episode is number 611, Wicked Things. The work included in this episode of the Wicked Library, The Price, is copyright of Neil Gaiman. No recordings of this episode, in whole or in part, may be made, sold, or distributed by anyone other than the author. Today's episode of the Wicked Library is presented by Rickard and Beagle Books. The bookstore is located in Dormont, PA. It's a favorite destination of Cat Mijos, Neil Gaiman's Genie in a Bottle. A local independent bookstore that's perfectly strange and strangely perfect. Rickard & Beagle is a fixture of the local community with a wide range of great books, rare titles, and other must-have collectibles. Whether you're from Pittsburgh or a world away, check them out online at rickardandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello kiddies, this is your librarian, and welcome to a very special episode of the Wicked Library. This time around we have a trio of tales from three authors that will give you such satisfying terror that you'd be wise to make sure you're still breathing when it's over. The first of these wicked things comes to you from a rather prolific and talented author from the United Shriekdom. We're so very fortunate that he has decided to share his terrifying tale with you. Let's listen to The Price by Neil Gaiman. Tramps and vagabonds have marks they make on gateposts and trees and doors, letting others of their kind know a little about the people who live at the houses and farms they pass on their travels. I think cats must leave similar signs. How else to explain the cats who turn up at our door throughout the year, hungry and flea-ridden and abandoned? We take them in, we get rid of the fleas and the ticks, feed them and take them to the vet. We pay for them to get their shots, and, indignity upon indignity, we have them neutered or spayed. And they stay with us. For a few months, 
or for a year, or forever. Most of them arrive in summer. We live in the country, just the right distance out of town for the city dwellers to abandon their cats near us. We never seem to have more than eight cats, rarely have less than three. The cat population of my house is currently as follows. Hermione and Pod, Tabby and Black respectively, the mad sisters who live in my attic office and do not mingle, Snowflake, the blue-eyed, long-haired white cat who lived wild in the woods for years before she gave up her wild ways for soft sofas and beds. And last, but largest, Furball, Snowflake's cushion-like calico long-haired daughter, orange and black and white, whom I discovered as a tiny kitten in our garage one day, strangled and almost dead, her head poked through an old badminton net, and who surprised us all by not dying, but instead growing up to be the best-natured cat I have ever encountered. And then there is the black cat, who has no other name than the black cat, and who turned up almost a month ago. We did not realize he was going to be living here at first. He looked too well-fed to be a stray, too old and jaunty to have been abandoned. He looked like a small panther, and he moved like a patch of night. One day, in the summer, he was lurking about our ramshackle porch, eight or nine years old at a guess, male, greenish-yellow of eye, very friendly, quite unperturbable. I assumed he belonged to a neighboring farmer or household. I went away for a few weeks to finish writing a book, and when I came home, he was still on our porch, living in an old cat bed one of the children had found for him. He was, however, almost unrecognizable. Patches of fur had gone, and there were deep scratches on his gray skin. The tip of one ear was chewed away. There was a gash beneath one eye, a slice gone from one lip. He looked tired and thin. We took the black cat to the vet, where we got him some antibiotics, which we fed him each night along with soft cat food. We wondered who he was fighting. Snowflake, our beautiful white near-feral queen? Raccoons? A rat-tailed fanged possum? Each night, the scratches would be worse. One night, his side would be chewed up. The next, it would be his underbelly, raked with claw marks and bloody to the touch. When it got to that point, I took him down to the basement to recover, beside the furnace and piles of boxes. He was surprisingly heavy, the black cat, and I picked him up and carried him down there with a cat basket and a litter box and some food and water. I closed the door behind me. I had to wash the blood from my hands when I left the basement. He stayed down there for four days. At first, he seemed too weak to feed himself. A cut beneath one eye had rendered him almost one-eyed, and he limped and lulled weakly, thick yellow pus oozing from the cut in his lip. I went down there every morning and every night, and I fed him, and I gave him antibiotics, which I mixed with his canned food, and I dabbed at the worst of his cuts, and I spoke to him. He had diarrhea, and, although I changed his litter daily, the basement stank evilly. The four days that the black cat lived in the basement were a bad four days in my house. 
The baby slipped in the bath and banged her head and might have drowned. I learned that a project I had set my heart on, adapting Hope Merely's novel, Blood in the Mist, for the BBC, was no longer going to happen, and I realized that I did not have the energy to begin again from scratch, pitching it to other networks or to other media. My daughter left for summer camp and immediately began to send home a plethora of heart-tearing letters and cards, five or six each day, imploring us to bring her home. My son had some kind of fight with his best friend, to the point that they were no longer on speaking terms. And returning home one night, my wife hit a deer that ran out in front of the car. The deer was killed. The car was left undrivable, and my wife sustained a small cut over one eye. By the fourth day, the cat was prowling the basement, walking haltingly but impatiently between the stacks of books and comics, the boxes of mail and cassettes of pictures and of gifts and of stuff. He mewed at me to let him out, and reluctantly, I did so. He went back onto the porch and slept there for the rest of the day. The next morning, there were deep new gashes in his flanks and clumps of black cat hair, his covered the wooden boards of the porch. Letters arrived that day from my daughter, telling us that camp was going better and she thought she could survive a few days. My son and his friends sorted out their problem, although what the argument was about, trading cards, computer games, Star Wars, or a girl, I would never learn. The BBC executive who had vetoed Lud in the Mist was discovered to have been taking bribes. Well, questionable loans from an independent production company and was sent home on permanent leave. His successor, I was delighted to learn when she faxed me, was the woman who had initially proposed the project to me before leaving the BBC. I thought about returning the black cat to the basement, but decided against it. Instead, I resolved to try and discover what kind of animal was coming to our house each night, and from there to formulate a plan of action to trap it, perhaps. For birthdays and at Christmas, my family gives me gadgets and gizmos, pricey toys which excite my fancy, but ultimately rarely leave their boxes. There is a food dehydrator and an electric carving knife, a bread-making machine, and last year's present, a pair of see-in-the-dark binoculars. On Christmas Day, I had put the batteries into the binoculars and had walked about the basement in the dark, too impatient even to wait until nightfall, stalking a flock of imaginary starlings. You were warned not to turn it on in the light. That would have damaged the binoculars and quite possibly your eyes as well. Afterward, I had put the device back into its box, and it sat there still in my office beside the box of computer cables and forgotten bits and pieces. Perhaps, I thought, if the creature, dog or cat or raccoon or what have you, were to see me sitting on the porch, it would not come. So I took a chair into the box and coat room, a little larger than a closet, which overlooks the porch, and when everyone in the house was asleep, I went out onto the porch and bade the black cat good night. That cat, my wife had said when he first arrived, is a person and there was something very person-like in his huge leonine face. His broad black nose, his greenish-yellow eyes, his fanged but amiable mouth, still leaking amber pus from the right lower lip. I stroked his head, 
and scratched him beneath the chin and wished him well. Then I went inside and turned off the lights on the porch. I sat on my chair in the darkness inside the house, with the see-in-the-dark binoculars on my lap. I had switched the binoculars on, and a trickle of greenish light came from the eyepieces. Time passed in the darkness. I experimented with looking at the darkness with the binoculars, learning to focus, to see the world in shades of green. I found myself horrified by the number of swarming insects I could see in the night air. It was as if the world were some kind of nightmarish soup, swimming with life. Then I lowered the binoculars from my eyes and stared out at the rich blacks and blues of the night, empty and peaceful and calm. Time passed. I struggled to keep awake, found myself profoundly missing cigarettes and coffee, my two lost addictions. Either of them would have kept my eyes open, but before I had tumbled too far into the world of sleep and dreams, a yowl from the garden jerked me fully awake. I fumbled the binoculars to my eyes and was disappointed to see that it was merely Snowflake, the white cat, streaking across the front garden like a patch of greenish-white light. She vanished into the woodland to the left of the house and was gone. I was about to settle myself back down when it occurred to me to wonder what exactly had startled Snowflake so, and I began scanning the middle distance with the binoculars, looking for a huge raccoon, a dog, or vicious possum. And there was, indeed, something coming down the driveway toward the house. I could see it through the binoculars clear as day. It was the devil. I had never seen the devil before, and although I had written about him in the past, if pressed, I would have confessed that I had no belief in him, other than as an imaginary figure, tragic and Miltonian. The figure coming up the driveway was not Milton's Lucifer. It was the devil. My heart began to pound in my chest, to pound so hard that it hurt. I hoped it could not see me, that in a dark house behind window glass, I was hidden. The figure flickered and changed as it walked up the drive. One moment it was dark, bull-like, minotaurish. The next it was slim and female. The next it was a cat itself, A scarred, huge, gray-green wildcat, its face contorted with hate. There are steps that lead up to my porch, four white wooden steps in need of a coat of paint. I knew they were white, although they were, like everything else, green through my binoculars. At the bottom of the steps, the devil stopped and called out something that I could not understand. Three, perhaps four words in a whining, howling language that must have been old and forgotten when Babylon was young. And although I did not understand the words, I felt the hairs raise on the back of my head as it called. And then I heard, muffled through the glass but still audible, a low growl, a challenge, and slowly, unsteadily, a black figure walked down the steps of the house, away from me, toward the devil. These days, the black cat no longer moved like a panther. Instead, he stumbled 
and rocked like a sailor only recently returned to land. The devil was a woman now. She said something soothing and gentle to the cat in a tongue that sounded like French and reached out a hand to him. He sank his teeth into her arm and her lip curled and she spat at him. The woman glanced up at me then and if I had doubted that she was the devil before, I was certain of it now. The woman's eyes flashed red fire at me, but you can see no red through the night vision binoculars, only shades of green. And the devil saw me through the window. It saw me. I am in no doubt about that at all. The devil twisted and writhed, and now it was some kind of jackal, a flat-faced, huge-headed, bull-necked creature halfway between hyena and dingo. There were maggots squirming in its mangy fur, and it began to walk up the steps. The black cat leapt upon it, and in seconds they became a rolling, writhing thing, moving faster than my eyes could follow. All this in silence. And then a low roar. Down the country road at the bottom of our drive, in the distance, lumbered a late-night truck its blazing headlights burning bright as green sun through the binoculars. I lowered them from my eyes and saw only darkness and the gentle yellow of headlights, and then the red of rear lights as it vanished off again into nowhere at all. When I raised the binoculars once more, there was nothing to be seen, only the black cat on the steps staring up into the air. I trained the binoculars up and saw something flying away. A vulture, perhaps, or an eagle. And then it flew beyond the trees and was gone. I went out onto the porch and picked up the black cat and stroked him and said kind, soothing things to him. He mewled piteously when I first approached him, but after a while, he went to sleep on my lap and I put him into his basket and went upstairs to my bed to sleep myself. There was dried blood on my t-shirt and jeans the following morning. That was a week ago. The thing that comes to my house does not come every night. But it comes most nights. We know it by the wounds on the cat. And the pain I can see in those leonine eyes. He has lost the use of his left front paw. And his right eye is closed for good. I wonder what we did to deserve the black cat. I wonder who sent him. And, selfish and scared, I wonder how much more he has to give. Well, that certainly was shocking, wasn't it? The devil always gets a bad rap, doesn't he? He's actually not such a bad guy. Just make sure you don't owe him anything, or you could find yourself doing voiceovers for a small eternity on a podcast. But I digress. Let's have a listen to our next decomposition by our very own narrator that may or may not have happened to some of you out there. 
This one's called Stop 666 by Daniel Foytick. <laughs> It's the wanting that does you in. Some might say it's the desire to get what you have trapped inside out, but they'd be wrong. Really, that's the easy part. I've never struggled to get the words down. I'm actually pretty good at that part. But the wanting? Well, I really had done everything right. I did it wrong a lot of times before that, of course. But I learned, and I honed, and I polished, and I made the words sing. But still, still, I couldn't get published. It was frustrating because, well, I've read a lot of the other stuff that is getting published. Don't get me wrong, there is some good stuff hitting the shelves, but a lot of it is complete garbage. I know, I'm not an editor or an English major or some long-established critic, but I read a lot. Uh lot. When you read a lot, you can tell what works and what doesn't. The truth is, writing is actually hard. I think some people think it's just playtime, tapping away at a keyboard as magic flows through your fingers onto the page. I think they think this because there have been some popular movies with cool-as-hell montages where the author creates this superb manuscript in a single sitting. It ends when he lays the last page on the pile, swigs some scotch, and then cashes a fat check about two hours later. But it doesn't happen like that. Not for most of us, anyway. This is the part where I'm going to lose you if I don't tell you something truly interesting almost immediately. When you write, you need to establish a mood and get your reader on your side pretty quickly. Especially these days. So, if I don't tell you right now that I'm selling my soul to a well-known fallen angel in about 20 minutes, your attention is going to wander. The good news is that I actually am meeting with the Prince of Darkness shortly, and the plan involves the aforementioned trade. Why? Why not? I don't think I can watch others succeed when I sit here writing much better stories and still getting nowhere. But more than that, at 46, there's not much time left to make my first book happen and actually have a writing career. Sure, I might get lucky and get a book deal eventually, but I also want the last 25 years back. I need that time to build a career. Doesn't matter. Regardless of what I say, you're going to find a reason to disagree with me anyway. Well, most of you are. Some of you probably understand. Let's move on, because I haven't told you the interesting part. Ready? Okay. Surprisingly, selling your soul to Satan isn't easy. Apparently, despite his celestial and presumably magical abilities, he's got a pretty full schedule. Getting a meeting with him is almost as hard as trying to get a big publishing house's editor to look at your work when you've never been published before. It took me a full year of working my way through some pretty unsavory characters and another year 
to navigate a whole platoon of lower-level demons to get this far. Finally, the dude who calls himself Legion is going to be showing up in a little under 10 minutes. It was a long drive to Virginia from Salem, a long drive to this particular crossroads. But every time I look at the stop sign and the route marker, I can't help but chuckle. Where else would you meet the great adversary besides the place where Route 666 cuts across Paradise Way? I stare at the night sky and wait. It's calm and quiet, a bit cooler than I expected. I shiver and pull my coat closer, but the chill remains. My phone rings and I answer. Are you there? Are you waiting where I told you to be? It's the one who set up the meeting for me. A less than pleasant fellow going by the name of Stitch. I don't think that's actually his name. It doesn't appear in any of Crowley's charts of demons or in that copy of Raising Demons for Dummies, Millennium Edition, that I picked up at that perfectly strange little bookstore, Rickert and Beagle Books. But I suppose he just doesn't want me to know his real name. Maybe he thinks it would give me some kind of power over him. Before I can answer his question, I hear a loud slurping sound through the phone, like he's sucking a milkshake or something through a straw. I wait for him to finish and then speak up. Yeah, I'm here. I look at my watch. It's two minutes to midnight. Good. Be patient and stop quoting Iron Maiden titles. We're just down the road from you. There's enough time for a flock of something not quite like bats, but slightly unlike birds, to fly overhead. And then I hear the hum of the tires approaching. At exactly 12 a.m., the black limousine stops in the middle of the road, and the door opens. I wait for a moment watching. When no one gets out and the door remains open, I realize I'm supposed to get in. The door closes softly as I take my seat across from the dark figure. All I can make out is his silhouette, his shoulder-length hair, and the glint of light coming from what seems to be sunglasses. (laughs) You're a tough guy to get a hold of, I say with a nervous laugh. Am I? He says. His voice is smooth and rich with mild amusement. I suppose it's because I work like a millionaire, and I live like one too. I'm not sure what he means, so I just sit silently. My driver tells me you want to trade your soul for a writing career and the chance to relive the last 25 years. I turn and look over my shoulder, but see no one at the wheel. I suppose that's not really unusual when you're in the devil's limousine. I turn back to him and nod. Yes, that's exactly right. I'll tell you what. It's a red-letter day. I'll give you half of what you want. I ponder his words with a bit of disappointment. I know from my earlier conversation with Stitch that we're in what the real estate people like to call a buyer's market. Lots of souls up for grab, 
and only one interested buyer. It's pretty obvious that I'm going to have to compromise. Okay, I say. I suppose there are lots of other writers who came to the table late in life. If I can just get my work published, I can get busy for the next 30 or 40 years. The demon laughs and leans forward. (laughs) You misunderstand, friend. I'm not making you a published author. I'm giving you your last 25 years again. I frown and chew at my lip. This isn't really what I wanted. It occurs to me, this is probably why people say dealing with the army of one is less than optimal. But beggars and choosers and all that. All right, I say. I think I could make it on my own if I have another 25 years to get my work out there. As long as I find a good agent. He laughs again. This time, I hear the driver laugh too. (laughs) (laughs) They're really so stupid, the voice says from the front seat. The devil leans forward and puts his hand on my shoulder. His expression, a great stone face. Son, you're going to go through another 25 years of writing the best work no one will ever publish. I, I don't understand. I want to trade my soul to be published. I'm already writing work no one wants to publish. Boy, you can't trade your soul to me to become a great writer. You already did that 150 years ago. We meet here at this crossroads every 25 years. Your contract was up a long time ago. This is hell. <laughs> That's the trouble with being in a loop, boils and ghouls. Sometimes you find it around your neck at the worst time. <laughs> well, our last devilish diversion asks the question, what's worse than dating a serial killer? The answer is a heart stopper. Here's our old friend, Nelson W. Piles, and his horrifying tale. This one's called The Date. He was going to say something stupid. It was inevitable. Rebecca Varla had been out with him for over three hours, and she had lost count of the dumb shit he'd said over that time. He was attractive. She had to give him that, at least. Dark eyes an easy smile, almost professionally tousled hair, and built. He certainly charged her up in all the right places. But there was one catch. Stupid. Almost offensively stupid. He was amazed the sushi, for example, was raw. Holy shit, those chinks really know how to hide that raw taste, huh? He had said after the rather simple explanation from Rebecca. As hour four rounded the corner, she knew one thing. She couldn't wait to kill him. She watched him chomp through the sushi, mouth open, pieces of fish and seaweed stuck in his teeth, and he kept goddamn talking. You know, he said, eagerly biting into another chunk, you've hardly eaten any of yours. She was about to tell him that she wasn't hungry which was the truth, since he was making her sick. Can I have it? He asked in earnest. She smiled coolly. Well, 
You are a growing boy, she said, sliding her plate in front of him. He laughed, spitting a small piece of fish onto the side of her wine glass. Holy mother of God, I'm going to kill him slowly, she thought. This guy, Carl, he said his name was. If he kept up his awful dining habits, they wouldn't ever find all of him. She was slowly losing her patience, and that would be dangerous. If you were going to be a successful serial killer, you needed patience and lots of it. She took a deep breath and forced a smile. When you're done, let's get out of here, she said. There's still so much more night ahead of us. Carl shoved a huge chunk of fish into his mouth again. Cool, he said. Or at least that's what it sounded like. Where you want to go, babe? Babe? Well, she thought to herself... First, I'll take you back to my place. I'll let you have your way with me. And then I'll wait until you sleep, handcuff you in my basement, and dismember the ever-loving fuck out of you a piece at a time. I think I'll gag you first, because god damn your voice is awful. Oh, anywhere is fine, was what she said. Maybe I can show you a view of the sky from my deck. The response she got from Carl was one she didn't expect. He made an excited, yee-haw, kind of sound, and grabbed her hand. Rebecca was so surprised that she was totally unprepared for him getting up, leaning over the table, and kissing her full on the mouth. As his tongue explored her mouth, she was aware that he still had a mouthful of sushi. She fought the urge to gag, and when she was about to lose that fight... He pulled back. She nearly glared at him as he sat back down, smiling like a lunatic, and went back to chewing his food. Trying not to gag, she reached for the glass of wine, grabbed it, and the half-chewed fish on the side of the glass, and took a large mouthful. She swished the wine around and slyly spit it back into the goblet. She noticed that there were pieces of fish she hadn't chewed herself, and she shuddered. I'm pretty much done if you want to leave, he said. We can talk on our way back to your place. She smiled. He had a voice that could launch a thousand suicide hotlines, and the thought of talking to him in the car on the 40-minute ride to her house was unbearable. She decided right then and there that she'd cut his throat as soon as they arrived. She also decided to drive really fast. She paid the bill, he didn't even pretend to reach for his wallet, and stood next to him as her car was brought around. She looked at him and fought the urge to punch him. He looked at her, his mouth slightly open. Then he smiled, and for her she did the closest thing to melting. She decided to sleep with him before killing him. After she made him brush his teeth, of course. Rebecca's career as a serial killer had started, oddly enough, as an accident. She was a beautiful, statuesque woman 
with jet black hair and ice green eyes. There was even promise of a modeling career. Although she decided against it as her prospects as a financial consultant had proven to be more lucrative. The man she had been engaged to had cheated on her and she decided to call him out on it, which, to her surprise, had thrown him into a fit of sadness instead of rage. This somehow seemed to infuriate her more than him. As he sat on her sofa, sobbing, she had gone into her kitchen and found a huge cast-iron skillet. She sharply introduced it to the back of his head, and, without really meaning to, he was dead on the floor. After a small bout of panic, she calmed herself and dragged his body into her basement. There was a second bathroom there next to her workout equipment and woodworking bench. She managed to get his body into the tub and began to cut it into smaller, manageable chunks. The woodworking tools came in handier than she had thought. She then began, over the course of a few weeks, to dispose of the parts all over the city in black plastic bags. The police discovered parts three weeks later and were able to identify the corpse. Her alibi had already been established weeks before, and she was cleared of any suspicion. The entire process, she had discovered, had been not only thrilling, but satisfying. As the last few bags were disposed of, she decided that this was a hobby she could get behind. Fuck woodwork. This was blood work. On the very last bag, she left a note written in her left hand, neatly and perfect, that said simply, First. She began to plot her next victim and plan out how to make it more efficient. As Carl was going to be nine, she was really getting the system down in her eyes. But Carl was different. The other victims weren't nearly this awful. She probably would have been happy with eight, to be honest. And none of the victims had pushed her buttons as much as this clown. Ever. After they arrived at Rebecca's large secluded house, she pulled into the massive garage. As the door closed behind them, she looked at Carl. He wasn't talking for a moment, and he smiled at her. Let's go in and freshen up a bit, she said, nearly cooing. She was going to fuck him all right. And then she'd kill the hell out of him. That alone turned her on like she couldn't believe. Great, he said, opening his door. I've had to take a shit for like an hour. She rolled her eyes and got out of the car. She showed him where the first floor bathroom was and gave him a fresh towel, a new toothbrush, floss, and the really strong mouthwash. He smiled and vanished behind the door. She ran to the fridge and grabbed a half-full bottle of Pinot Grigio and guzzled it. She didn't want to get drunk, but needed something to calm her nerves. Anger made one reckless, and drunk made one sloppy. She could afford to be neither. When he fell asleep, as he most assuredly would, she would have him in a much different way. Ten minutes later, Carl came out of the bathroom. A smell of clean soap, and yes, thank the goddess, a minty scent that lingered. He was stark naked and hung. 
very well hung in fact. Maybe it was because she had a half bottle of Pinot, or she was still turned on from the thought of killing him, but she wanted him. She really wanted Carl. Before he had the chance to say a word, she was on him in her hallway, and he, in turn, was all over her. Three times. She had let him have her three times, and he was magnificent. He managed to find every erogenous zone she had, and a few she didn't know. It was tremendous, and whatever he lacked in the brain department, which was considerable, he made up for in the loin department. She was sexually satisfied. He, of course, had fallen asleep after each one, and although she was ashamed to admit it, she had let him sleep before rousing him again. And each time, he was just as eager, just as good. Maybe, she thought, I'll kill him in the morning. One more ride. She closed her eyes and fell asleep next to a lightly snoring Carl. The first thing she felt was heat. Not warmth, but actual goddamn heat. She tried to roll over away from it, but found she couldn't move. The second thing she felt was pain in her hands and feet. Unbelievable pain when she tried to move. It felt as if her hands and feet had been nailed to something. She tried to yell out, but there was something big and moving in her mouth. Something was digging into her tongue and she gagged. She tried to open her eyes, but there was something covering them and she began to panic. Oh, you're up, she heard someone say. It sounded like Carl. He sounded excited. I wanted to let you sleep as much as possible. Here, let me take this off. She felt him grab something from her head and the darkness was replaced with visible darkness. She could make out shapes and flames, but not much else. She looked around with wide, terrified eyes. Suddenly, Carl was in front of her. Well, he said, smiling, what do you think? She gagged at the shock of him popping up in front of her like that, as well as whatever the hell was in her mouth. Oh, I'm sorry, he said. Let me move Marshmallow. Marshmallow? His hands went to her mouth and grabbed whatever the hell was there. She looked down as he pulled a large white rat out of her mouth. She retched violently as Carl held the thing up to her face. Marshmallow? Meet Rebecca. Rebecca, this is Marshmallow. She looked at the rat and the rat hissed angrily at her. She tried to say something, but all that escaped from her mouth was a small squeak of a scream. I'm sure you two will be buddies in no time, Carl said. He looked and sounded like a puppy with a new toy. Rebecca again eyed her surroundings, but couldn't figure out where the hell she was. Don't try to speak, he said. Your voice will come back. Promise. 
Carl took the rat away from her face and walked to what looked like a wooden table behind him. There was a small bowl with the name Marshmallow inscribed, along with a little red heart. Although he told her not to try to speak, she tried anyway. Where the fuck? Really, honey? It'll hurt right now if you speak, Carl said, looking concerned. It's all is sulfur. You have to get used to it. Sulfur? You're home, he said. She saw him fully, and he was still naked from the night before. Still hard, in fact. My home. It's the least I could do since you took me to your home. She remembered falling asleep, determined to get one more pleasure ride out of him before... You are going to kill him, a new voice said. This voice was deep and booming, and seemed to be everywhere around her. You were all set to murder my son. This was followed with a tisk 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 sound. Then, a chuckle. Hey, she really was, wasn't she? Carl said, smiling. He was looking over Rebecca's head, and then, right at her, adding, That's so fucking hot. She struggled again, and this time, thought to look at her hand. A huge black spike had been driven into her wrist, while three thinner nails had been nailed directly into her palm. She didn't bother to look at her other hand. She definitely didn't want to see what had been driven into her feet, either. The sight of her one hand had rattled her to the core. Crucified, she croaked. Very good, the deep everywhere voice boomed. It's so old-fashioned, I know, Carl said. But I thought you'd appreciate it. Her head slumped. Now, now, the booming voice said. No need to feel sad. You have no idea how happy you've made Carl. And if you make Carl happy, well, I guess it goes without saying, you've made me happy too. Her head picked back up. She rolled her head around to try to see anything, but failed. You see, Rebecca, great name by the way, Carl has been looking for something of a soulmate for some time now. And frankly... The booming voice grew quiet, as if whispering. I was giving up hope, since he's a little, well, unusual. Hey, I'm right here, Carl said, laughing. Rebecca was hearing all this, and not hearing it at the same time. Well, anywho, he told me all about you, and I just had to meet you face to face, the voice said. If only to shut him up. Come on, Dad. You're embarrassing me. Dad? Let's have a look at your little princess, Carl. She looked past Carl and looked at the landscape. It appeared to be burning. Fine. It was a dream. Let the landscape burn. She chuckled and said, (laughs) Hell. The burning landscape was slowly blocked by a figure appearing before her. It was red, with horns, and a huge rictus mouth of teeth. It was smiling. She smiled and began to shake. She laughed and drooled. She began to realize that this wasn't a dream. She wasn't going to wake up. 
Rebecca, the horned figure said. My son isn't an evil being. In fact, you may have noticed, he's a little slow on the uptake. I know what you are, though, and I'm almost impressed. He loves you. You are incapable of love. I know that, but he doesn't. He's a little special needs. Rebecca shook and drooled. It was pure madness. I think you know who I am, the thing said. And where you are. She began to laugh. You're gonna like it here, it said, and began to laugh with her. Soon, Carl came over and began to laugh with them. He put his arm around his horned father and laughed with him and the love of his life. Rebecca, still laughing, also began to cry. She mouthed a single word, just one. Satan. Call me Dad. If you enjoyed today's episode, tune in again next week for a great new Wicked Tale by Cynthia Lohman. Today's episode featured three tales, The Price by Neil Gaiman. If you'd like more information on Neil and his work, please visit his website, neilgaiman.com, and follow him on Twitter at Neil himself. Stop 666 by Daniel Foytek. That's me. If you'd like to interact, follow me on Twitter at Ninth Story or at DFoytek and visit NinthStory.com for more about what I do. Last but not least, The Date by Nelson W. Piles. You can find Nelson lurking on Facebook and on Twitter at Nelson W. Piles. Artwork for today's show was created by Maddie Von Stark. Maddie, as you may know, was the former art director for this podcast and is currently the director of Forsaken, Book Tropes Horror Imprint. Her first novel, The Widow's Game, came out this year. You can follow the Twitter legend at Maddie Von Stark or just Google her. We also have artwork from Jeanette Andromeda. Jeanette runs the YouTube channel Haunting TV with her husband. And in the late hours of the night, she works on being an artist, blogger, YouTuber, and filmmaker. You can follow her at Jeanette underscore art. We also have artwork from Trisha Martin. Trisha also created an amazing teaser for today's episode. Trisha is currently working on illustrating a book with Crash Laresh called Midnight Me and Bob Macabre. The book was written by Crash to help his son deal with night terrors. It features Vex, a little boy who has violent dreams, riddled with spookies. For more information on the book and the upcoming Indiegogo campaign, search for Midnight Me and Bob Macabre on Facebook or follow at Trisha Kitty. And also artwork by Stephen Matico. You can find Steve on Twitter at S underscore Matico. Now, Steve's currently working with yours truly and Caitlin Marceau on artwork for a new project called The Lift. The Lift is a new story podcast. It's going to be similar to The Twilight Zone starring Victoria from The Ninth Story. And we're going to be launching this October with 22 episodes written by 12 different authors. And of course, we'll continue bringing you more Wicked episodes every week as well. The librarian would have it no other way. 
All of the music in today's episode was custom written for the stories. So, a big thanks to the following composers. Anthony Rausick wrote the Wicked Library theme. You can find Tony and the podcast Prague Watch in iTunes and on the radio in Europe. You can follow him at Prague Squatch. Sebastian Smith wrote the amazing accompanying score for The Price. You can find him on Facebook under Wings of Tomorrow Studios. John Nespazinski wrote a devilishly good score for Stop 666. By the way, a film John had produced, The Other Side, is going to be available for rent or purchase on September 1st on all the major video-on-demand platforms. So Voodoo, iTunes, Amazon Instant Video, and so on. It's a pretty cool zombie movie. Check it out. It's a lot of fun. Steve Montgomery as Dark Mood created the very dark comedy score for The Date. Steve is working on a new album of dark music. You can learn more by following him at Dark Mood. Be sure to check the show notes for more details, links, and other information on all our artists, authors, and composers. Also, a big thanks to Vincent Asaro for a great story last week and to Barney Botuano for the kick-ass art. A big thanks to Rickert and Beagle Books for presenting today's show. Don't forget to visit our other sponsors, Shadows at the Door and SanitariumMagazine.com. And as always, please share the terror, share the show, help us grow. Tell one friend or enemy about the show. Aside from that, the best support you can give us is to give us a good rating in iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Ratings are free, of course, and they mean a lot to us. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. Sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. And, in fact, we're going to be giving away posters for the animated short film based on the price by Neil Gaiman. So if you sign up, you have an opportunity to win those. Dramatic readings performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. All incidental music was written and performed by Kevin McLeod, or me, and used with our permission. See the show notes for links and titles. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Produced by me, executive producer Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 611. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyrighted their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. The price appears courtesy of Neil Gaiman, Kat Mijos, and Writer's House. Thank you for stopping by our ever-steady course of wicked things, kiddies. We'll be back next week with another all-new episode. Until next time, this is your librarian saying, go ahead. Leave the lights on. <laughs> See you soon, kiddies. Music. Talk. Stories. Ah. Ah.
You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.